0: Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Philip Harland, I'm a professor at York University in Toronto, and we're continuing on in the series Early Christian Portraits of Jesus. This is an historical and literary approach to the Gospels that we take, asking the question of. How do these ancient biographies, the gospels, portray Jesus? And what does this tell us about the author who wrote the gospel and about the communities that use these gospels? Today, we move on to the Gospel of John. So far, we've dealt with the Gospel of Mark, considered the earliest among scholars, and then Matthew and Luke. Today, we continue on looking at the portrait of Jesus and John, which is primarily in terms of Jesus as the Son sent by the Father, who is one with the Father. This we will see as the highest Christology among the Gospels that we've been looking at, namely that Jesus is portrayed in a way that is close to God in John in a way that is not the case with Matthew, Mark, or Luke. We'll also be considering other ways in which the Gospel of John portrays Jesus as a fulfillment of Judean festivals, for example, and the overall structure of the Gospel of John will be considered as it focuses on this issue of signs performed by Jesus that actually point back to who he is. I hope you enjoy this and the following episode that deal with the portrayal of Jesus in the Gospel of John. You may also want to browse my website philipharland.com if you're interested in reading further on early Christianity and other religions in the Roman Empire. A couple of my main points today relate to, first of all, the degree to which the Gospel of John differs from the Synoptic Gospels. It differs from them in terms of content, and we'll get into the details of that, but it also differs significantly from them in the portrayal of Jesus. There's some commonalities between the Synoptics and John and how Jesus is portrayed, but there's also far more differences in how Jesus is portrayed. And one of those differences is that the Gospel of John has the highest Christology of the Gospels that ended up in the New Testament. Christology relates to just words about Jesus or ideas about Jesus. And so when we say a writing has a high Christology, we're saying the ideas about Jesus in the Gospel of John place Jesus closer to God than any of the other Gospels. This relates to the other main point of today, namely what Jesus is portrayed as. He's portrayed as the self-expression and Son of the Father. Now, we've already come across Gospels that talk about Jesus being the Son of God. Gospel Mark that became a source for both Luke and Matthew, and therefore they all have it, has Jesus with the title Son of God. But the way in which the Gospel of John portrays Jesus as the Son is more developed and more focused on his status and as the representative of the Father, the Son as the emissary of the Father who sent him. Therefore, the Son can fully represent the Father. And so, this way in which the Son-Father connection is developed is not characteristic of the other Gospels, even though the Son of God title is there. That's the focus of all of the Gospel of John, almost. This idea of the Son sent by the Father, who therefore fully represents the Father. To see the Son is to see the Father. To hear the Son is to hear the Father. To recognize the Son is to recognize the Father. To accept the Son is to accept the Father. This whole line of reasoning in the Gospel of John is very prevalent. But another way in which the Gospel of John portrays Jesus is linked to that. The whole structure of the Gospel of John is about signs pointing to who Jesus is. Namely, that the signs point to the fact that it is the son sent by the father, who is therefore representative of the father and all that. So the signs point to who he is. But built into some of these signs are Jesus portrayed as fulfillment of Judean festivals, of Jewish festivals. There's a commonality between the Gospel of John and some of the other Gospels in the sense that Jesus is seen as a fulfillment of Judaism, but in a different way here. It's a different tack on it, a different angle on that idea of Jesus being a fulfillment. Let's now move on to the introductory matters and talk a little bit about the Gospel of John generally before we get into the details of the portrayal of Jesus. The vast majority of the Gospel of John is not paralleled in the Synoptic Gospels. Even the types of material that the Gospel of John presents are very different than you get in the Synoptic Gospels. For example, there are no exorcisms, not a single one, in the entire Gospel of John. An exorcism is when Jesus comes to a figure who is portrayed in the, in the narrative as being possessed by a demon, and that Jesus casts out that demon. This next point of contrast is quite striking as well. Matthew, Mark, and Luke present Jesus' style of teaching consistently as using parables, where Jesus uses everyday experiences of the peasants to express what he's trying to get at. The parable is totally absent from the entire Gospel of John. These are very striking differences. The style of Jesus' teaching, the extensive discourses he engages in, are distinctive to John's Gospel. Something that I need to say more about later, because it actually pertains to an important aspect of the portrayal of Jesus as fulfillment of the festivals, is Jesus dies on an entirely different day in the Gospel of John. Jesus dies on the same day when the lambs that are used for Passover are prepared, on the day of preparation for Passover meal, namely the day before Passover. The Last Supper in the Synoptics is the Passover meal. In John, there is no final Passover meal. What I've just said is all about the relationship of John to the synoptics, or the lack thereof. In terms of authorship, audience, and date, the gospel itself claims to represent not the authorship of the beloved disciple. It never claims to be written by the beloved disciple. However, consistently throughout the narrative, the author claims that the information that is presented, sometimes certain information, including when Jesus is on the cross and he's, the soldier ensures that he is dead and water and blood comes out, including that incident, for example, the, the author of the Gospel of John claims to have had this information from an eyewitness, an eyewitness that is mysteriously throughout the narrative called the Beloved Disciple, disciple whom Jesus loved. So the Gospel itself never claims to have been written by the Beloved Disciple. It claims to have the testimony of the Beloved Disciple. However, within tradition, the Gospel of John is attributed to John, the son of Zebedee. So this figure, the beloved disciple, first appears in chapter 13 and then appears several times after that. And so if you're interested, you could, for example, study Johannine Christianity as the scholarly term for it. But you can study the epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the Gospel of John in conjunction together to get a glimpse into a type of Christianity that differs from, for example, Pauline Christianity or differs from some of the other types of Christianity we see reflected in the Synoptic Gospels. So it's at least worth mentioning that broader context of what is known as the Johannine school, the John school or the Johannine community that, uh, that that scholars are interested in studying. Tradition associates the Gospel of John with Ephesus in Asia Minor. And it's partly because there's the tradition that John the son of Zebedee, Moved from Palestine and resettled in Ephesus. Now it's possible that it does come from Ephesus, but in terms of the basis on which that is uh, you know, established, we just don't have a way of confirming that or disconfirming it at all. As to date, as with the other Gospels, John is usually dated by scholars to the late first century. And as with the other Gospels, there's a bit of careful guesswork involved in dating. But what we do know, for example, is when the Gospel of John first gets used. It first gets used apparently beginning about 150 CE. Christian authors like Valentinus, who happens to be a Gnostic, apparently knowing the Gospel of John so that it dates before 150. We also in this case are lucky because we have found a fragment of a papyrus that has a little fragment of the Gospel of John on it and it can be somewhat reliably dated, using scientific ways of dating the papyrus itself, to the early 2nd century. So that's all external clues that allow a scholar to say something about date. Well, internally within the Gospel of John itself, there's something that points to the late 1st century as well. Three times in the narrative, characters are thrown out of the synagogue. Aposynagogos. It's one word, the way they have it in in the Greek there. Thrown out of the synagogue. In conjunction with our other evidence, this fits very well in the late 1st century. Because in the 90s CE, we know that in some areas, Judeans that belonged to synagogues and the leadership of certain synagogues were beginning to distinguish themselves from the Nazarenes, as they called them, from the followers of Jesus. So that followers of Jesus were attending the Jewish synagogues. We know that early Christianity was a form of Judaism. So yes, of course, followers of Jesus went to the synagogues as late as the first century and and even beyond that. Even in the third century we have evidence of followers of Jesus still attending the synagogue. So this issue of splitting between Christianity and Judaism is a long process. But what I'm trying to point out to you now is that there is evidence that a particular leader in the late first century actually changed one of the regular prayers that was recited in synagogues and the prayer was built to exclude Nazarenes to exclude followers of Jesus, and this is in the 90s CE. Here's what the prayer says once it's revised in the late 1st century. For the apostates, let there be no hope, and let the arrogant government be speedily uprooted in our days. Let the Nazarenes and the heretics be destroyed in a moment, and let them be blotted out of the book of life and not be inscribed together with the righteous. Blessed are thou, O Lord, who humblest the arrogant. So building Jesus followers specifically into a previously existing prayer that was about heretics, now Jesus followers being added in. Now it's not that this was implemented everywhere in every synagogue. There'd be plenty of synagogues where followers of Jesus still just worshipping the Judean God right alongside of other Judeans. However, in some places in the late first century, this is what's happening. And it seems this is also reflected in the Gospel of John when there's this reference to a character being thrown out of the synagogue. Let's get into some of the distinctive features, some of which I've mentioned already, of the Gospel of John. First of all, there's widespread symbolism in the Gospel of John. In terms of the content and style of Jesus' teaching, are long philosophical, you could say, discourses that Jesus has. There's no parables which we contrast the synoptics, but on top of that, there's no even talk of the kingdom of God much. There's an emphasis on the role of the Spirit in a particular way. We're familiar with the Holy Spirit playing a major role as a character in the Gospel of Luke, but not so in Mark and Matthew as much. However, the Gospel of John has a very fundamental role for the Spirit, but the Spirit is understood in a particular way as the Comforter who will come once Jesus leaves once Jesus returns to the Father. Jesus' miracles are portrayed as signs, which is distinctive to the Gospel of John. Does anyone remember talk of signs in Matthew, Mark, or Luke? So in the Synoptic Gospels, you do have talk of signs and talk of Jesus doing signs, but it's always opponents saying, show us a sign, and Jesus is always saying, hey, I'm not gonna give you any signs, that Jesus refuses to give a sign. And the Gospel of John is structured around signs of who Jesus is, and it's his miracles that are the signs. Another distinctive feature is this emphasis on Jesus' teaching, love one another. Now, the point isn't that the Synoptic Gospels teach that Jesus said, hate one another. That's not what I'm saying. The point is, though, this emphasis on love is not characteristic of Matthew, Mark, and Luke they do have Jesus summarizing what the law is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So when Jesus summarizes the, the Torah, yes, love comes into it. But this whole idea of loving one another is characteristic of the Gospel of John. There's a sense in which this introduction to the Gospel of John, as with the other Gospels, the first chapters give away a lot about how Jesus is going to be portrayed. And the prologue itself has many of the dominant themes that will recur over and over again throughout the whole gospel. First of all, right off the bat we have a very high Christology in the portrayal of Jesus because it begins with in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things came into being through him. So already off the bat we have the Logos, the reason, of God, or the word of God, or the self-expression of God, or the utterance of God, already we have this figure of the utterance of God active with God in creation. In the beginning is alluding back to the Genesis account of creation. The whole Gospel of John begins with in the beginning, expecting hearers to say, oh this sounds like the Genesis account of creation, and that's precisely what you're meant to think. Remember that in Genesis, God creates by uttering words, and his words make things happen. And what is the Gospel of John going to do? It's going to say, this guy, Jesus, can be identified with the utterance of God that was active in creation. So already you have a high Christology. In other words, Jesus portrayed as very close to God in a way that's different from the other Gospels we've looked at. Already in the prologue, you also have talk about life, light. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light. So you have Jesus identified as the light as well in the first few verses. He's coming into a dark world, and there's this contrast between light and darkness already. There's this talk of the world not knowing him, and that he was sent from God to the world already in the prologue. This is characteristic of the Gospel of John. That's who Jesus is, the Son sent from the Father. The sent emissary role of the Son, the representative role of the Son, that the Son is sent by the Father and therefore represents the Father, and therefore by seeing the Son, you're seeing the Father, and therefore by hearing the Son, you're hearing the Father. All of this is already being introduced to you to some degree in the prologue. And it's characteristic of John and not characteristic of Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness, we all have received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son, who is close to the father's heart who has made him known. Jesus is the son sent by the father who reveals who the father is. And this connects up with the portrayal of Jesus as the utterance of God, doesn't it? If Jesus is the thoughts of God, that it get expressed orally through an utterance, through a word, it's through seeing that the utterance of God, that you're actually receiving the message from God himself. And Jesus is also the emissary of the father the Son sent by the Father, who represents fully the Father. Despite that though, there's nuance to that, that there's a few places we're going to get into where this is put down a level in the sense that Jesus himself in the narrative says, I can't do a thing without the Father. So if you start to think that Jesus is God, which it sounds like sometimes, it's complicated by the fact that Jesus himself says, No, I can't do a thing without the Father. It's only by virtue of the fact that he's sent by the Father that the Son can do anything at all. But what he can do is very fatherly, is very God-like, but it's only because he's sent by God, by the Father, that the Son can do those things. So there's that nuance to it. This isn't the Trinitarian doctrine of the 4th century. The reason it sounds a lot like the Trinity when you read through John is because the Gospel of John became the main source for building up that theory of the Trinity, alongside later philosophical ideas. Let's move on now. The whole structure of the Gospel of John is centered around the signs, and we're going to have seven signs, and we're going to work our way through these signs. They're the primary way in which you can organize your thoughts around the Gospel of John. But before we get to the first sign, there's more material in chapter 1 that needs to really be drawn attention to, and that is the interaction between John the Baptist and Jesus in the Gospel of John. And look at what he says. Verse 29 of chapter 1. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You may be familiar with this idea of interpreting Jesus as a sacrifice who takes away sin. However, that is not prevalent in any, it's not even evident in some of the Gospels we've read so far. But in the Gospel of John, it's a key interpretation of Jesus. Now, the reason it's important is beyond the fact that we're having an interpretation of the meaning of Jesus' death here in the Gospel of John. It's also linked up with the portrayal of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Judean festivals, it seems. What I'm talking about is later on, when we get into further into the narrative, we'll see that Jesus fulfills the Passover festival in the way that John portrays Jesus. Jesus is a fulfillment of it. But there's a sense in which the whole Gospel of John is framed by Jesus as the fulfillment of the Passover, because here he's the Lamb. And what time of year does Jesus die? During Passover time. In all the Gospels, it happens during Passover time. What day does Jesus die in the Gospel of John compared to the synoptics, which is a different day? Jesus in the Gospel of John dies on the day on which the lambs are prepared for the Passover meal the following day. And so you could argue that the Gospel of John as a whole is framed by Jesus as the Lamb of God who fulfills the Judean festival of the Passover. Because it begins with him as the Lamb of God and ends with his execution on the day when the lambs for Passover are prepared for the Passover meal, slaughtered in order to be eaten the following day. So already in the first chapter, Jesus is the Word, the utterance of God who is active in creation. Jesus is already the light who will come into a world of darkness. Jesus is already the son sent by the father who makes known the father, who represents the father, who is the father in his role as emissary of the father. He's already the lamb of God. Look through the rest of chapter one. He's already the son of God title given to him. Already the Messiah title given to him in chapter one. Already the king of Israel title given to him. Already the son of man title. In the first chapter of John, you have just about every single title you could come up with, in all the other synoptics and some more, blatantly stated as who Jesus is. The Gospel of John is not secretive at all about who Jesus is. So right after chapter 1 is where you first come to the first sign that structures the whole way in which the Gospel unfolds. And this is the sign where Jesus turns the water into wine when he's at a wedding. Jesus did this, the first of his signs. It actually, the phrasing tells you they're going to have multiple signs. In the end of the gospel, we already saw the thesis statement says, there were many other signs that I could have put in this gospel, but I decided to stop here. Let me refer to another bit of material that happens in these first four chapters here before we get to signs two and three. In chapter three, you have that story of Jesus talking to one of the Pharisees, Nicodemus. And towards the end of that conversation, Jesus makes a statement that becomes important in the way that the author of the Gospel of John portrays Jesus' death. For the Gospel of John, Jesus' death is interpreted as an exaltation. Jesus' death is portrayed as a being lifted up. So you have that first in chapter 3, quite early, and then it recurs throughout the rest of the story of Jesus. Very truly I tell you, I'm in verse 11 of chapter 3, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. Jesus is saying this. If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven. Ascent and descent, very important to the overall portrayal of Jesus in Gospel John. The ascent and descent, and it's related to the portrayal of Jesus as identified with the utterance of God in creation that we've already mentioned. That he was present in creation, and that there's a descent into the world, and an ascent. And the ascent is expressed in terms of the crucifixion, as the ascent of the Son to, to go back to the Father who sent him. And that's what we have here. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So this idea of the death of Jesus being a lifting up, and that the lifting up is for sin. We have already seen that the execution of Jesus is interpreted as a sacrifice for sin in John. But it's also a glorious exaltation of Jesus, the lifting up. Let's move on to some more of the signs. Signs 2 and 3 take place in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Sign two is the healing of the official son. And then sign three is the healing of the sick man at the pool. And then you have some more of the discourses. What you'll find the pattern in John's gospel is this. Jesus does a sign. He then goes on and discourses a whole long time. So you have these two signs, and then you have a discourse by Jesus. And this first somewhat extensive discourse of Jesus delves us further into the portrayal of Jesus as the son sent by the father. And I want to draw attention to some characteristics of it. Take a look at chapter 5, verses 16 and following, where Jesus has performed the two signs, and now there's a reaction to the signs he's performed, and some of the Judeans that are there are objecting to what he's doing. Therefore, the Judeans started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is still working, and I also am working. So this idea of the son being the emissary of the father, and the father's God, and that the Emissary of the Father, the Son, can do what God can do, does the work of God, including these signs that are pointing to who He is, namely the Son sent by the Father. It's also perhaps alluding back to the prologue, where we had the depiction of the utterance of God as active in working in creation, and actually working to create the world. And here, Jesus portrayed as the Son who is still working that creative power of God. What I just interpreted out of that statement about working is how the characters in the narrative interpret it. For this reason, the Judeans were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, thereby making himself equal to God. So there's that statement of claims of equality with God. And it's because he is the son sent by the father and represents the father that he is the father present as his emissary. But there's going to be things that balance that out. Take a look at verse 30 of the exact same chapter. Jesus says this, I can do nothing on my own. It's only in his role as the son sent by the father, as the emissary of the father, who therefore represents the father. It's only in that role that Jesus is equal with God. In other respects, he can't do anything without the father in the way that it's portrayed here. So it's a bit nuanced and hard to figure out this issue of the Christology of the Gospel of John. The dialogue goes on here at this point to talk about the son who has been sent by the father giving life to whoever he wishes. Let's move on to another one of the signs now. Sign number four, the feeding of the 5,000 takes place in chapter six. This is the first place where one of the signs that Jesus performs is interpreted in conjunction with Jesus being the fulfillment of Judean festivals, of Jewish festivals. And there's a clear link between the type of sign and the way in which Jesus is a fulfillment of a particular festival. And you'll see that with each of the ones that involve festivals here. So we're in chapter uh, 6, sign number 4, the festival of Passover fulfillment. As I said already, we've got Jesus, the whole, thing, the whole gospel of John, framed by the idea that Jesus is a fulfillment of the Passover because he's the ultimate Passover lamb of God. But here we have it underlined again. So take a look at the dialogue. So we have Jesus feeding 5,000. What does he feed them? feeds them bread. And in this case, the discourse directly relates to the miracle he did. What does Jesus say he is? Verses 35 and following. I am the bread of life. He's just fed people, 5,000 people with bread. And then his discourse, extensive discourse, is about I am the bread of life. What is he comparing himself to here? It's not only that, yeah, I'm the bread. But how does this relate to Passover and how does Jesus talk about it? He talks about himself being the bread from heaven. Where do you come across ideas of bread from heaven in the story in Exodus about the Israelites journeying through the desert and the way they're kept alive is bread from heaven. And Jesus is interpreting himself as the equivalent of the manna from heaven in the Exodus story. What is the Exodus story linked up with in terms of festivals? The Passover festival. The Passover festival is all about celebrating the freedom of the Israelites. The God saved his people by freeing them from slavery in Egypt. And so the whole Exodus story in a way comes up in connection with the Passover festival. Let's look at the next festival, which doesn't happen in conjunction with a sign. This one's in chapters 7 to 8, where we have another case of Jesus as the fulfillment of a Judean festival. The festival of tabernacles or festival of booths, tents, takes place in the fall. There's two components of the festival that are particularly important for you to know about in order to understand how John, the author of John's gospel, is deliberately portraying Jesus as the fulfillment of another festival. Namely, that there is drawing of water on each of seven days during the Festival of Tabernacles. And there's a use of lamps and light that is integral to the Festival of Tabernacles. Lo and behold, what is Jesus' discourse about? He is interacting with people at the festival, and then he has a discourse about what? Verses 37 and following of chapter seven. On the last day of the festival, the great day, while Jesus was standing there, he cried out, let anyone who is thirsty come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. I'm the water that brings life, basically, is what you have here. What do you have as the next aspect of his discourse? I am the light of the world, verses 12 and following of chapter 8. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We already knew that as a theme right from the prologue, right? The idea of Jesus as the light who comes to the darkness. But here it's in conjunction with the Tabernacles Festival that has light as one of its main aspects that Jesus is being portrayed as the fulfillment of a festival once again. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharland.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this second series in the podcast is my own remix of portions of What You Are from the album Without Zero by Joie. This is copyright 2007, Real World Records and it's used with permission under a Creative Commons type license.